about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Uh, great to be with you tonight, uh, online or in the building. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here. Special hello to you if you are new. Love having new people among us. I hope you experience the warmth of God's love and you might see Jesus. In fact, I hope all of us see Jesus uh, in, in helpful new ways in light of what we have before us today. Uh, as Kev says, um, we are finishing up uh, next week, our last week, uh, this series on Isaiah, God's righteousness coming. And today we're going to unpack the wonder of the covenant of peace, God's promise of peace uh, with his people. And in Hebrew particularly, peace, shalom, it's so much richer than kind of like looking forward to being comfortable on my couch watching Netflix. You know, that's, that's what we think of peace perhaps. Um, it's, it's even more expansive than just hoping that wars would finish uh, across the world. It is the complete and fundamental reconciliation of all that is broken in this world from God, humanity to creation, all brought back into peace. What a great thing to be able to unpack tonight. But we, we of course, go about securing peace in all kinds of different ways. As I kind of search the internet, I, I love searching the internet for kind of fodder for introductions of sermons. This is amazing. From p- pandemic to peace, how you can secure your wealth, peace and happiness in any situation. Uh, I knew I was under something good when, when the Amazon kind of you know, front page review said, uh, this book is like that warm cup of soup on a cold stormy night. I was like, yes, this is trash. Um, it will soothe your soul and show you how to increase your health, wealth, peace, blah, blah, blah. But what really gripped me was the next sentence. While the majority of humanity suffered, the total wealth of the US billionaires grew to over $4 trillion during the pandemic. I, I actually found myself appalled. In one sentence, they've kind of acknowledged the suffering of the pandemic, but let me show you how you can turn your lemons into lemonade and kind of make your riches. How often is that kind of the turn the lemon into lemonade kind of mantra, a kind of a selfish move that kind of turns away from the sufferings and kind of seeks to make your own way, seek your own peace, your own security? Another way we pursue peace is making promises to each other. I mean, it could be as simple as uh, kind of a business contract. You kind of do acknowledge the risks at play and kind of you want to kind of carve out peace and the way you're going to work or partner together and you sign the legal documents. Uh, I signed some legal documents yesterday with a couple that I married in this church and they made some promises too. In the middle of wedding ceremonies are the vows that say through thick and thin, through sickness and health, for better or worse. We know that there is unrest ahead of us, but we're going to do it together. That's one of the beautiful ways that we try and secure peace in this world that doesn't have peace, that we do it together. God made several promises, covenants, throughout the Old Testament. And we see three of them in view in this passage as a covenant of peace is illuminated. 
He chose to bind himself to us, that we would partner with him, as it were, to partner with the, the creator of the universe in his creation. And what we find is that his covenant it is beautiful, it is steadfast, and it is extravagant. God's faithfulness surpasses ours <laughs> and then some. This is the passage outline I'm going to work through today. It's a poem, so I'm going to try to come, come from a few different angles. One is God's covenant faithfulness, which just illuminates our own failures. And, and then how through sin, sickness and suffering, we are brought into the city of peace, that last section of the passage. So I encourage you to have a Bible open. I mean, you've got, you've got a, a passage printed in your newsletter in the building. I encourage you to actually grab a whole Bible because you can sort of see how it sits in, in kind of the surrounding passages as well, particularly after last week. Um, and if you're online, I guess make whatever you can at home available. Let me pray. Father, speak to us now that we might discover you and your peace in profoundly new ways because you are with us and you are speaking to us tonight. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to help us kind of appreciate is how this sits in the story. And one of the things that I do as a, as a Bible teacher, as a preacher, is, is not just to kind of inspire you, but to actually teach you God's Word as, as, the, as part of the whole story of God's revelation of himself to us. And this passage really brings together kind of the Old Testament story and, and what God is promising and will bring into fruition. Uh, it's particularly a chapter that's after the previous. I mean, that's logical, but I'm going to show you why that's important. And it combines our experiences with uh, God's promises. Now, in this first section of looking at God's covenantal faithfulness, the first thing that comes to, to the fore is, I mean, verse 1, it's a confronting verse. I have to come back and spend some time with it because it is jarring in so many ways. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about my wife and I and our story through infertility. I'm going to come back to that because it is just such a kind of confronting opening to the passage. But one of the things that, that verse 1 is doing when Isaiah says, sing barren woman, is it's an allusion to a barren woman of the Old Testament, and particularly one who was married to Abraham, to Sarah and Abraham. Sarah was barren, and, and God made a covenant promise with Abraham. And, and those covenant promises included promises of land, of, of descendants, and, and to be a blessing to the world. And, and what was so ludicrous, in fact, Sarah laughed as God makes these promises, because the promise of having descendants, I mean, they were old, and, and they'd been trying to have kids, and, and they, she was barren. And that was despairing. And for God to sort of swoop in and say, I'm going to promise you descendants and a whole bunch of blessings, she, she laughed at that. And I totally get that. And the other reference is to kind of enlarging your, your, the place of your tent. Uh, the descendants will possess nations. All of that takes us back to that particular covenant with Abraham. One of the things we've got to notice about the way God makes covenants, particularly in the Old Testament, it is that as he promises great blessings... They are often conditional, so that God's uh, promises were dependent on Abraham's obedience to him. We can read about that in Genesis 15 to 17. Now, God did do immeasurably more than they could imagine. Sarah didn't end up having a child with Abraham. His name was Isaac, and he became Israel. 
And of course we know that that's the name because it became a nation. And God fulfilled his promises in remarkable ways and continued to fulfill his promises. And now Isaiah is expanding their, their imagination, their view of God and what he will do even more so. To, to the point where, and it's, there is a beauty to kind of this description of, of, of a barren woman singing because she, she is brought into a family of God, as it were. We are children of the promise, as Galatians would put it. We are adopted into the family of God so that whether you're part of a nuclear family or, or not, you, are, you have a family in Christ. I mean, on one occasion, Jesus is speaking to a crowd and the crowd says, uh, Jesus, your, your mother and your brother are here. And he says, who are my mother and brother? It's a very rude statement. We've uh, given it just there. But, but he then goes on to say, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and my brother. As we look around here tonight, we have brothers and sisters forged in the grace of God and his extravagant faithfulness to his promises to work his ways through us. I rejoice that church is a family. As I think about moving to a different church and as I kind of counsel people who, who move churches, I often kind of celebrate the idea that, that you're about to meet a family you didn't know you had because there are brothers and sisters in Christ there ready for you. I mean, I love that. As much as I will miss the family I have here with you guys. So that's the first covenant in view, the covenant with Abraham. The, the second covenant is a covenant with Israel. And we pick that up when God is described as, uh, look down in verse 5, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's your Maker, Lord Almighty, Redeemer. And as soon as we think of the Redeemer language, we think of, of how God redeemed the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and through the Exodus brought them to sort of Mount Sinai where Moses you know, encounters God in, in that kind of incredible moment. And God makes a covenant with Israel Exodus 20, verse 6, will say something like, uh, For a thousand generations, God will promise his blessings to those who love him and obey him. Well, we see this, this covenant of kind of uh, this promise of blessing, but we also see the way that Israel are called to partner in, to, to be faithful. And what happens, as you might recall, is that Moses comes down the mountain with those two tablets and he's so pumped and he's just seen kind of God in that incredible moment. And he's coming down the mountain and you would expect the people who have just been redeemed, or not just because it was a long journey, but redeemed out of Egypt to be hungry for the Lord and kind of what he's about to say and for his word and for his teaching. Instead, they just built a golden calf and, and they're worshipping the golden calf saying, here is our God who brought us up out of Egypt. I mean, what, what the heck is going on in that moment? So quickly had they betrayed the God who loved them, who was making a covenant with them. And yet, we see down in verse 9, God is described as one with an everlasting kindness. I will have compassion on you. Despite our unfaithfulness, God his everlasting kindness. In Hebrew, chesed. It's, it's the word that describes God's covenantal faithfulness, his enduring nature, unlike our fickle one. 
God is faithful to his covenant. We are not. God is extravagant as he brings us into this covenant of peace. And that's where we're headed next. The third covenant is with Noah. That's made really explicit. Verse 9, To me, this is like the days of Noah, the Lord says, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth, because God made a covenant that he would never again flood the earth, destroy humanity. And while, while Noah sort of appears before these other two covenants in the story chronologically, I think God puts it here as a, as a third covenant, oh, it's kind of a, a, a third in, in line here, because logically it, it expands our vision to just the expansive nature of this covenant of peace. And that is, just as God promised to never flood the earth again, his covenantal faithfulness will expand to the whole world so that all could discover this covenant of peace. Verse 10, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. And that's just the beginning, because as these chapters unfold, from here all the way to the chapter 65, we see that this promise isn't just for Israel. Uh, but for, for all of creation. We're brought into that wonderful picture of shalom, of peace. In chapter 64, maybe 65, that there is a description of, of the wolf eating with the lamb. That's just one of the ways that, kind of, that the peace of all creation is described. No longer will there be this animosity, but there will be peace through creation, humanity, God, all reconciled. So just in these kind of in, in these three stanzas, we are reminded of the whole backstory to this point, of God's continual faithfulness to his covenants and our continual unfaithfulness. It's kind of like in, in this covenant relationship between God and Israel, it's like a marriage. God continues to renew his, his covenants, his faithfulness, declare his faithfulness, and we continue to to be unfaithful. That's one of the ways that the prophets will talk about that relationship with Israel and God. There is so much drama in this. I mean, what would it be like? I mean, when I counseled the couple that I married yesterday, and in the pre-marriage counseling, I reminded them that they are, they are two sinners saved by grace brought together in union. So kind of put aside the kind of pretense that it's going to be perfect and wonderful all the time. And it's liberating in that sense. But what would it be like to be brought into a covenant relationship where God is perfect, he is righteous, and we are not? Well, despite our failings, God's covenant of peace is available to Israel, is available to us, because that is who God is. He is merciful. He is kind. He is a God of compassion, of peace. He's a God of shalom. Now that's one way to kind of approach this passage, to look at kind of how this sits in the story. But as I came to recognize that this is a passage about the city of peace, about this covenant of peace, I thought about how I might write it. I mean, I, I would write it just as kind of a chunk of like, you know, Revelation 21, where God will wipe away every tear, there'll be no more suffering, no more death, there'll be peace, it's going to be wonderful. 
And that's good. We need that picture of heaven, of shalom. But what I find in this passage is it doesn't just paint a picture of that. It, it, it joins their very predicament, their plight, their suffering with, with this picture of the covenant of peace. Did you notice it? I mean, how often in this passage is shame referred to disgrace, humiliation, suffering? I mean, the very first verse, the jarring first verse, does it not confront us in our experience, in our sin, sickness, and suffering? Now, while, while verse 1 is, is an allusion to Sarah and the covenant with Abraham, as I'm trying to help us see, it starts to encapsulate the human condition, our experience in suffering. Now, for anyone who is wrestling with infertility, childlessness, I have to say this is a very, very confronting passage. I mean, as I think back to our time through infertility, I think my wife would have left this service in tears, not in joy. Because so raw was the experience in that time and, and so silent often. We don't talk about it much. But, it, but this passage isn't just about infertility or, or kind of barrenness. It, it, it's really encapsulating all of our suffering. For, for whatever you are feeling in shame, in kind of distress, disgrace, God is meeting you in that. He is binding himself and that's what's going on here, this covenant, this partnership. God is binding himself to us in our predicament. And when I shared my testimony a couple of weeks ago, I took us to a moment where, after a long season of infertility, God showed us that, that we had defined our life around this heavy issue. I mean, it, it, we'd gone from kind of trusting in God and kind of just knowing that we're in a broken world and things don't work out, to, to letting that, that suffering sink into our hearts. And, and, and when it got there, it, it defined us. It brought us low. But I think actually God, God laid us low that we might look at him more simply. There was that moment in Melbourne where, uh, where we heard a sermon uh, based on that covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And just how confronting it was that Israel had, had abandoned the God they loved, the God who loved them, for, for a golden calf. And how quickly we turn good things into God things. And even we would turn kind of a desire for, for children into a God thing. And we need to be called away from that, that we might look at God again, that we might rejoice in Him again as He binds Himself to us. Because this passage only comes after the previous passage. So it's not okay just to pop in the middle of nowhere, sing barren woman. The only reason why we could sing in any of our sufferings is because the suffering servant suffered with us and for us. This is what God looks like. He doesn't stand from afar and say, rejoice. He enters into our very predicament, our very shame, our very disgrace the weight of our non-shalom, our sinfulness. He takes on the iniquity of us that we might have life, that we might have peace. Now for some of you, 
you might be sitting heavy with, with something right now. And you might not have experienced that vindication, to use that word from the last sentence there. You might not have experienced the moment where God's actually reversed your circumstances. And, and so you still have this thorn in your side and you're still kind of looking at God saying, what are you doing? Can, can I call you to keep looking to the suffering servant? To keep your eyes on him as he binds himself to you? I'm convinced that the only way that we can sit in suffering, persevere, is not just to look at heaven, this beautiful picture of the city of peace, but to look at the suffering servant. But for those of us who are feeling a sense of peace, can I ask you to be careful that you don't consider yourself blessed just because of your circumstances? that you've kind of found the peace of God just because life is good for you right now. You too must keep your eyes on the suffering servant. We will all suffer at various points. And I'm calling us to, to lean into that in a way because suffering gives us a special revelation of the character of God. Because it is God who suffered with us and for us. Just as this passage references all kinds of sufferings and paints a picture of the peace on offer, this passage joins those two things in as much as God has joined himself to you in Christ. And as we walk with him, we too will enter the city of peace. Look at verse 11. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. That's how they feel. That's where they're at. This is a prophecy into their moment of exile, of suffering. God says, I know you feel that. That's where you're at. I will rebuild you. He says, with stones of turquoise, your foundations, with lapis lazuli. I know a little bit more about this because of Minecraft with my kids. Um, but, there is this picture of, of, of rare and beautiful gems, of splendor, of, of starting to reverse all that is not right with this world to bring us into this city of peace, the city of shalom. This covenant, this promise, this access is secure like nothing else. You are not called to be turning lemons into lemonade. You're not called to kind of, by willpower, to make this better. You are being called to follow Jesus through the cross to the city of the suffering servant. And, and this is a city of servants. I mean, look at that last part. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And at the centre of this city of servants, there is the suffering servant. There is the lamb slain for us. There is the one who brings us to the banquet by grace alone. I, I, I love that we should keep aspiring to be a church full of misfits. Because there's nothing that kind of holds us together. Nothing other than the grace of God. Not some common interest. Not some kind of subculture. The only thing that brings us together is the grace of God. 
And there is no weapon that can be forged against you. There is no, nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Friends, welcome to the city of Shalom, the city of the suffering servant. Let me finish with a, a challenge of sorts. As I was um, reading about this passage and the way it's been used, I came across William Carey, who is the kind of the forefather of modern mission. He, he was speaking to a, to a sleepy English church, and he was calling them to, to reach a world that didn't know Jesus. He ended up spending decades of his ministry in India and kind of started a movement of, of international mission. Remarkable man. But, but in the critical moment where he was speaking to this sleepy church that was content just to do its own thing in one patch of the world, he spoke from this passage. He spoke particularly from verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Where did he go with that? His sermon was titled, Expect Great Things from God. And then attempt great things for God. Friends, as we look at the, this, and marvel at, at the expansive nature of shalom, that that cosmic reconciliation that has at the center the cross of Jesus Christ, when we see the glory of God, let us marvel at the great things He has done and now is doing as He brings all people, all things under Christ. Friends, that is the covenant of peace, the new covenant that you have been brought into by the blood of Christ. You are now partnering with Christ. You are ambassadors of this new covenant. Friends, let us continue to enlarge our imagination, our vision of what God is doing in this world, having done all things in Christ. And so let's go on to attempt great things. Let us not rest, in a sense, until the whole world knows about Jesus. But all of that comes from an overflow of having rest, having peace in Christ. Do you get me? Let me pray. Father, give us your peace which transcends all understanding and guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.